Thank you, church choir. Let's give God some praise for their singing this morning. Would you join me in the book of Acts chapter 16? Acts chapter 16. And I want to read verses 19 through 24. Acts chapter 16, verses 19 through 24. Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. <clears throat> when we last encountered Paul, he was performing what we would honor to be the most honorable thing in helping set free a young girl whose life had been gripped in the Pythanian spirit of oppression. We would think that the city, the officials, and particularly those who were close to this young girl would certainly be rejoicing that this one individual who had been exploited and misused by those who managed to gain control over both her mental and emotional state would be rejoicing that she is free and no longer is under the auspices of oppression. But instead, we find that Paul will pay a price for doing the right thing. We live in a climate in which one now has to second guess if doing the right thing is the right thing to do particularly when one sees an individual in need that can instantly be delivered, and yet one now must worry, if I do so, what is both the legal as well as the personal repercussions for setting someone free. You would think that that would be the moral and humane instinct on the inside of us to work to set people free, and indeed that is true, but even helping those who need the help sometimes have utilized the spirit of exploitation to jam those who tend to be good that they may pay a severe price in the end. We can no longer see someone stranded by the highway and think that they need help, therefore I can help 
and conclude that that would be a good thing to do. We can no longer even see someone standing on the roadside with a sign that says they need help and give help and think that might be the right thing to do. Even in your neighborhood, you have to second guess whether or not I should help my neighbor shovel the snow. I may become injured or he may become injured if he comes to my house to assist. And the bottom line is we may find this to be a legal matter. Something has happened to the need of being able to just consistently and humanely assist each other. Everything has turned into dollars and cents. Profit has been majored over people. And that's what we find in this context, Paul, that rather than the city cheering that this young girl is released, we'll find that there are those who are complaining that their profit flow has been cut off. It appears that at least from Paul's standpoint, the operative term of definition in this text is sustainability. How do I sustain and persevere and keep my sanity under insane conditions? And how do I maintain my balance of hope and encouragement when weakness is knocking at the door? It further appears that the power from the holy to those who desire such strength is acquired only through strange paths that involve being vulnerable, frustrated, encountering pain, agony, often flagged with disappointment, just to arrive at what may be a fruitful experience. I call this sermon a strange path to power because I realize that as we continue to grow as human beings and particularly those of us who have been introduced to leadership positions that happen to be wrapped in power acquisition we can be reduced to doing anything that helps us acquire power power to be over somebody else and power to be able to tell somebody else what to do but most importantly, power to determine someone else's destiny. We are strange creatures when it comes to power. We love it, we engage it, we long for it, but we often fail to recognize the perils that come along with it. It can be a dangerous encounter if one is not mature enough to handle what power means. But when you flip that coin and look at it from an eternal standpoint, from the standpoint of heaven, God has a strange curriculum that leads us to power. It's strange because it takes us down several paths that we certainly would never imagine that we would have to travel to gain heavenly power. One such path is testing. God takes us down the path of testing if our prayer is, Lord, give me power to sustain, power to survive, power to maintain, power to keep my sanity under insane conditions, and power to maintain my balance of hope and encouragement when, again, weakness is knocking at the door 
if that becomes our prayer, then don't be surprised if you are led down the path of testing that you might acquire power. You read the life of Jesus, you'll notice that he begins his ministry with those affirming words from the Father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased after baptism. But then when you read Matthew 4 and verse 1, it says that he is led into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted by the devil. It was that path that affirmed his infilling power to not only lead a group of day workers who were described as fishermen and government thugs to become fishers of men, but he also began ministering in Galilee, says Matthew 4, verse 23, and he couldn't do what he did i.e. teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel, healing every kind of disease and sickness among the people. He couldn't do that unless first he had to walk through the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's a strange path to power, if you ask me. And then effectively it says, he caused those throughout Syria to bring to him the ill with all types of pain, those who had all types of illnesses, those who were attacked by every form of the demonic, those who were experiencing epileptics and who were paralytic, and he healed them all. I'm convinced he wouldn't have been endued with the power to do so had he not went down the strange path in the wilderness to be confronted by the enemy. Arguably, this, I think, initiated Jesus into that path of testing. And you recall, Abraham doesn't really enjoy the privilege and the power of the promise that God makes to him until after a long stretch of testing and waiting until the birth of Isaac. Genesis 12 through, 20, through 18. Not until Abraham is stretched to the point where he goes and jumps through a number of self-induced hoops just to see if he could beat God at his own game, only to discover that when God makes a promise to give you power, then that power will likewise be accompanied by a stench of testing. Abraham doesn't find out until he realizes that he is 90 plus years of, of age and then God brings forth the birth of Isaac after helping Abraham realize when you have stretched all of your possibilities of what you can do and you ask me for power, I'll give it when I realize and know you've exhausted everything you have in yourself. Another strange path to power is the experience of loss. Not only God, does God take us down the path of testing, but God takes us down the path of lost. It's strange, but it happens. Lost entails being stripped of not just some, but even all that you may have labored intensely to acquire. 
Some sickness stops by and robs you of your ability to continue to provide. Some tragic circumstance, not of your own doing, interrupts your life and devalues as well as debilitates your possibilities down to ground zero. Some satanic attack in which God appears to have vacated your life allows it to happen only to have you survive and possibly have a Job experience where you receive back double what you've lost only after first praying for those who've hurt you in the process. God leads you down strange paths to power. He not only leads us down the path of testing and the path of lost, but he also leads us down the strange path of persecution. Luke tells us in this text of Acts that Paul, the primary person, is going to be led down the very same path that he led others down when he was persecuting the church. The attempt to suppress your voice or even to oppress your efforts in life is a strange path to power according to Luke. If you read the book of Acts, particularly chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 12, you will notice that everywhere there is persecution, there is likewise a strange passage that says the strengthening of the church and the increase in its members. In other words, Luke says that it's amazingly God used persecution to not only strengthen the church to recognize how strong it actually can be in him, but it also increased its membership in numbers. That's strange to me because Luke is suggesting that if you don't have some hard times, don't look for growth. And that's tough because I see churches every day that seems to be flying high in terms of growth and the numbers never decline, but they're forever inclining. But what I'm not privy to is what's happening behind the scenes. I don't know exactly how they're getting to where they are and I don't know what storm or what winds of adversity is being blown in their path. But all I know is that Luke is suggesting that in sometimes in order for God to give you power, he takes you down a strange path of persecution. When we are in positions of power and someone says to us by way of aspiration, I want to be where you are, amazingly they think that it's an instantaneous decision to merely get there, not understanding the route that it took to get you there and what you went through to be where you are right now. We merely only look at people with an understanding that they've aspired a status or a space in life that we so desire, but yet many of us are not willing to pay the price which might include persecution to where they are that we in return can arrive at the same space. I didn't realize how deep that was until some my own personal academic pursuits, looking at others, thinking that it would not only was the good thing to do, but it had to be a pretty fairly easy thing to do. And then I realized it wasn't easy at all. Not the academic work, that didn't bother me, that was a breeze, but the drama and the politics in the process. 
dealing with people and dealing with the innuendos and dealing with personalities and dealing with the expectations that are not only unreasonable, but don't even fall into the purview of what I'm trying to discover and achieve, and yet you can't get there unless in some way you appease the person who's in power that can help you get to where you want to be. We might translate it in the street by saying acquiring the ability to be able to kiss butts to get to where you want to be. And sometimes you really have to do that. Grandmama say bite your tongue. Put what you really want to say on lockdown. Having the goal in view that you might get to where you want to be. And I believe there's some witnesses in here this morning. You know what I mean by you've had to endure some people's comments and some people's behavior. You had to endure some supervisors who were not only unreasonable, but who had no aspirations to see you grow or develop or blessed at all, who were really only in your way yet because you bit your tongue and because you kissed up enough to get to where you wanted to be, rather than them being a stumbling block, they end up being a stepping stone to where you are now. And now you look back and you can explain to someone who's trying to aspire to become, it ain't easy to get where you want to be. You just need to understand persecution might be in this path, testing might be in this path, and loss. We haven't even talked about some of the things we lost to get to where we are now, not just the loss of some friendships or the loss of some family members or even the loss of a spouse I'm not talking about death. I'm talking about people just walking away or people turning their backs or people saying, I don't understand you or people saying, you just don't make no sense or you've lost your mind. Again, you having the goal in mind, not understanding why you are led down this path, take that path, and yet to continue down there, to get to where you want to be, you've lost some stuff. But even in the loss, it's amazing how you were strengthened in the process and you increased in stature. Yet in the book of Acts chapter 11 verse 19 through 21, persecution not only gave strength to the church, but it also scattered the church, scattered the people. But the end result was that many Greeks in Antioch turned their lives to believe in Jesus. It's a strange path to power. I don't understand how God scatters a people to yet evangelize, to increase a people. But that's what he does. And here we are right here in Acts chapter 16. There's another illustration here of how God turned a bad circumstance into spiritual victory. Let's look at Paul, falsely accused, savagely beaten, unjustly in prison. And yet Paul and Silas saw God use this awful circumstance to bring salvation to an entire household. I don't know why God would put one person in prison to save another. 
But that's just how this text learns. And I'm learning that after biographical exportation in looking at the various Christians across history and discovering their purpose and their gift and their calling is being expressed and exposed to me that in order to make a difference in people's lives, escaping test, escaping loss, escaping persecution, escaping sickness, escaping directions to strange paths to power is not going to happen. You're going to carry some battle scars in your life. When I look at certain preachers that I admire, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher, English preacher, who led thousands to Christ, but yet every Sunday when he demounted the pulpit, he went home and suffered from depression and suffered from gout. My, my most favorite preacher who taught me a lot, the late William Augustus Jones, the towering voice that he was for many years in Brooklyn, suffered from kidney disease his entire life that eventually took his life. I understand now, strangely, that across the spasm of time, to make a difference, one's life has to have a scar. But somehow God takes those scars and turn them into stars that those who view their illumination find hope where they are. I don't think it's fair that God sacrifices me to bring someone else to Christ, but then I can't avoid what happens at Calvary when I make that very statement. For God sacrificed himself at the cross that I might have a right, says grandmama, to the tree of life. So in other words, God says, if you want to make an effect in people's lives, you may become my sacrificial lamb that I might bring them, bring them to where they need to be in terms of eternal life. And the smallest church that Paul ministered to became overwhelmingly the most powerful and effective church that Paul ministered to. The church in Philippi experienced these strange paths in order to ascertain the towering power that it had to make an effect in ministry. You recall now that after Paul helped release this girl from her bondage, Satan immediately responded and reacted to the growing nature of what was happening in Macedonia. Wherever there is power resulting from prayer and praise, there will be persecution. Satan attacks the church always using two venues. First, the infiltration attacking the church within. That means that he finds a way to get inside of the church and then begin to create confusion, stirring up trouble that internally the church begins to splinter and suffer challenges. But then he also uses an external means by bringing about persecution on the outside of the church. And here we are in Acts chapter 16, where Satan fails in his effort. He fails internally because Paul, neither Silas, collapsed under the rebutting of the enemy when Paul speaks to the evil spirit in the girl. 
and yet he fails in trying to destroy Paul and Silas because they do not crumble under the test or persecution that's being expanded in their life. Understand this, these strange paths will either extend your faith, that means that if you are praying, Lord, give me power to endure or power to be all that you want me to be, expect for your faith to be stretched in a strange context. Expect that rather than there, there being around you the disappearance of those who annoy you, there may be the increase of more annoyance to strengthen you. Uh-huh, I think it'd be quiet there. Expect that your faith will be extended even in the confinement of your own family because there's no greater test of patience and strength and faith and hope than those who are close around you who will test to see the validity and the reality of your faith proclamation. God not only will extend your faith, but he will empower your inspiration. It's a strange path, but God takes you down. If your prayer is, Lord, I want to praise you regardless. I want to get to a point where I can praise you regardless of what's going on in my life because it's not about the circumstance. It's about honoring you. Well, you better be prepared that to empower your inspiration, God going to put you in the valley of the shadow of death. But remember, it'll just be a shadow of death. He'll put you there that your inspiration will help you realize, can I praise him when the sun is shining? And can I praise him when the rain is falling? And can I praise him when everything is stable? Or can I praise him when an earthquake is occurring as well? To empower who you are means that God has got to not only stretch you to extend your faith, but I got to build it by putting it through the test to see just how strong you are, not for me, but that you might see what I can and cannot handle. And then God says, I'm going to excite your spirituality. Remember I told you, if you're too stressed to be blessed, let's find out because your spirituality should be able to sustain you through whatever happens in life's journey. No matter how dark it is, no matter what the occasion, your belief in God should be able to sustain you in the language of Job, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. That doesn't mean though he killed me, it means though he takes me and extends me and empowers me and yet excites my spirituality, yet I will trust him because God has the power to give and God has the power to take away. And because God is that, then I'm still happy because I'm happy in Jesus no matter what the day might bring. Now how my theory is validated is right here in Acts chapter 16 verses 19 through 24. The, those who sought to own that girl who was delivered from the grip of the Pythian spirit were enraged when they found out 
that instead of rejoicing for her deliverance, they were angry because they no longer had her in spiritual slavery. They saw their hope of profit, says verse 19, over person eliminated totally by Paul. They were more than outraged. They took the same attitude. You remember in Mark chapter 5, the community took the same attitude when Jesus delivered that boy from the demonic spirit. The community, when he took that spirit out and put them into the swine, the community was rejoicing, uh, was mad, not over the fact that the boy was healed. They were angry because Jesus affected their economics. He bothered their profit by causing those swine to jump over the cliff. And what did he do? He was trying to tell him, be rejoicing that this boy who was once demonically possessed is now free. This girl who was once demonically possessed is now free. But when people value profits over other people's lives, they're more mad about the fact that you took away their money than saving a soul. In Ephesus, the craftsmen who made shrines to the goddess Artemis became violently hostile against Christianity because what was happening was Christianity was growing and people were being delivered and the shrines that were being made as idols were being reduced, effecting their profits. Certain business individuals became angry when truth hurts their profits. Paul warned us that money has the power to persuade many to fight for as if it were their life to die for when it came to money. Remember he says that the love and control of money over you can dog you with temptation and persuade you to do foolish and harmful things, plunging you into destruction or ruins. But when you cost or threaten to cost people profit, they will engage some strange behavior to protest that you're stealing their profits, so they think. I'm still trying to reconcile how the NFL has given athletes second and third chances who were spousal abusers, who were drug users and abusers, who've been charged with murder, with robbery, with rape, with cheating, and because one man refused to stand and honor the flag, instead kneel to protest injustice under the assumed protection of the flag, he is blacklisted, ousted, shut out from making a living because hiring him may affect someone's profit. It's a strange path to power for Colin Kaepernick, yet Enraged at the loss of income this girl provided, the master, says the text, seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And I'm just wondering, those who came out and claimed that they support Kaepernick, I'm asking, well, where is the Tom Brady and where is the Ben What's his name? Rostenbarger? Whatever the heck his name is. Where are you? Wouldn't it make a difference if you, being a power broker in the NFL, 
have an effect upon the profit line for your team, stand up and tell the owners, I understand that you don't understand why he's doing what he's doing, but does that really have an effect upon what we're doing as athletes publicly? When somebody like you steps to the forefront, rather than just give lip service, I support him, he should have a job. We don't need you to say that. We need you to tell your owner, Mr. Crab, look at here, give him a shot at the game. Make sure you tell the other owners, which I find also to be an interesting little club where you can't buy a team unless all the owners said you can buy a team, which says to me, there's something suspicious about how that business works. If I got the money does it really matter if you say I can buy the team at all and if I do have it and you say you don't want me to have it then I can't have the team there's something wrong with that kind of composition of power and yet that's what we live within let me move to my text because I'm gonna get off this thing and is it you, you got to understand why this impacts us because in verse 19, there are several words that Luke uses that we really got to understand. The word, the first word is the word seized. The word seized comes from a Greek word that suggests that there has been granted power legally to arrest one based upon their suspicion of threat to economic and political power. Do you not see that in place now? If you just mention the word, I'll blow up, you're you going to get arrested. If you just mention the word that you might have a weapon, you're going to get arrested. Certain people have been given power to seize you if you pose an economic or political threat. I'm not going to call his name, but I find it very interesting that the gentleman who used to head the Ways and Means Committee, which is extremely important when you think about politics, amazingly, when the whole idea of sexual abuse scandals come about, they've been trying for years to get this brother out of his position because he was a power broker indeed, but they couldn't find a way except to drudge up someone who I really believe they coerced to suggest that he had or made some sexual advances toward many years ago and rather than to fight them he resigns his position because people are crazy when it comes to power and profits and here it is they seized Paul, watch the second word, they dragged them. Comes from a single Greek word which depicts that they granted power to, watch this, physically maneuver in order to psychologically impress upon the onlookers that the power lies in the hands of Caesar and the magisterial presence. All I got to say is one phrase, Police brutality. It's utilized for a reason. It is to send the message of those who are on looking, whether video, whether in real time, that you don't mess with the power structure. The reason why the crucifixion was so daunting and so impressing was because they took a person to the center of the city 
and hung them on that cross and they left them there for days that it might send the message to everyone who's walking by, don't mess with Caesar. Don't threaten the power. Don't threaten authority. And how do I know that happened? Because if you just read the history of the Black Panther movement, they killed it because they realized here was a group of people who were standing up to the power only to say, you're not going to come in our community and kill innocent individuals because you got the power to do so. If you do that, you're going to have to deal with us. And what happens? They got ammunition, they got weaponry, and they provided the necessary care for all that. Don't nobody talk about what the Black Panther did in terms of providing food and nursing and nursery and health care and groceries and bill payment in the Oakland community. Nobody talks about that. All they talk about is they were black men standing with guns in their hand. You better believe it because sometimes you have to stand against the power structure to let the power structure know that you don't threaten me and if you attempt to do so, you got hell to pay. And here's what I find even further interesting. Have you noticed that the power structure never picks on those who got power to retaliate? Only those who got power or who don't have the power to do so, the general population. Have you ever seen the, the uh, police community go into the community where the bloods and the crypts exist? I don't think so. Because just as they devalue life, their life can be devalued. Here it is right in the text. Paul and Silas don't say anything, but they are, they are seized, they are dragged, and that's the climate we have in America. A believed need to show people what police authority means so that they can get away even with misusing power. And it happens. It happens. It happens all the time. You rarely will see that a police officer is brought to justice when he or she innocently, or he or she kills an innocent individual who is no threat to them at all. You rarely will see that come to power and be prosecuted because the power structure knows that if they do that, it will appear that they are weak. And they believe that if they are weak, then that will mean a social construct may rise to stand against the power. Physical intimidation plays a critical role in establishing authority in a social society. I mean, there's a reason why they are taught to look intimidating that we might reduce and be fearful of them. What I think is interesting about this behavior is that Paul, Paul, who's being seized and dragged, yet you go back to Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, he's experiencing the same thing that he did to the church. When you read the text, it says Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Now, who dragging who off? Because it's a fulfillment of Paul's own words later. What goes around comes around. Or better said in Galatians, you will reap what you sow. The third word is the marketplace. There it is right there in verse 19 and then in verse 20. Verse 19. 
They dragged him into the marketplace before the authorities. The marketplace, the agora as it's called in the Greek, represents the central public square, watch this, once again, where everybody can witness, everybody can witness what happens when the power structure engages power. They drug him right there in the public. Remember, these men are not law enforcement. These masters, verse 19, talks about they're not law enforcement, nor are they government officials. They are persons of economic power who are connected politically to official power. They are persons who are influential in lawmaking. That's what amazes me about this talk today, about we got to have gun law. we got to have something about, really? We're going to talk about that now? When we, we were killing in the 80s and 90s in the black community, nobody was talking about gun control laws. We're going to talk about that now. We're really going to say that we're going to have to put some laws out and we allow walkouts of students to protest? Really? When there are certain communities that protest certain things, we shut them down immediately by calling in the National Guard? See, those are the subtle movements of discrimination in America's democracy. And you, it'll just go right over your head if you don't pay attention to it. Go right over your head. You'll think that's a good thing. But bear in mind, these same masters here are nothing more than contemporary lawmakers, lobbyists, CEOs, fundraisers, individuals who are powerful, who will find a way Now, how many gun laws you come up with? Somehow you got to get rid of the NRA or you ain't going to come up with no gun laws at all. Because as much power and as much authority as they have, and I'm not impressed by all these different companies who decide to cut ties with them. You know why they cut ties? Profits. Profits. Profits were dwindling. People were beginning to say that we will no longer shop, no longer support your business if you continue this. Why? Because a certain segment of the population have suffered the killing of a child. I wish I could tell you, do you know how many mamas that's faces of African descent that suffered the killing of their child every single day? Not just by their own in the community, but by your authority. Ain't nobody ever said a mumbling word. And do you know how many of my children you've drugged into the marketplace to make an example of them before the magistrates and the authorities? Here it is right here in the text. The marketplace was the social center of the city. This is where the unemployed day worker worked or he waited there that he might find work to support his family. This is where the sick came to be healed and the magistrate came to judge cases. Right there, right in the center of the marketplace. And this is where they drug Paul and Silas. Plaintiffs could drag their defendant there and ask the judge, give me a verdict right now according to Roman law. But then there's a fourth word. Then I'm done. I'm not going to finish this. Authorities and chief magistrates. They all judged the Roman colonies. But the threat of these men 
followed by the recognition of their race as a matter, as another means to act against them. Look at the text. It says, these men, verse 20, are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Now watch the next line. And are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. Went right over your head. See, it amazes me how people want to read the Bible and not recognize its own racial tension that exists. You can't read the Bible about, first of all, recognizing race because if you go all the way back to the beginning of time, there is the recognition of race coming from the creation that God aligned. Then you recognize the power structure of human beings wanting to be in control of another, i.e. Cain and Abel. Then you recognize as you move through time that it doesn't just became, be between people, but it comes between people's group. Somebody wants to be in control of another, someone's inferior, someone's superiority, someone thinks that they're more important than somebody else, and it's going to always exist. Look at this text closely. Listen to what they say. These guys are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, one race, and they are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Can you not see that? There's a tension there. Now you might ask, what's the tension? It's nothing more than to remind us, no matter how hard you try, whoever holds the political and economic power will always be threatened by those who aspire to have more. You can try to paint the multicultural, diverse, integrational, intergenerational picture all you want about the Bible. It don't exist. It doesn't exist. It's either Jew or Gentile, whether it's Occidental or Oriental, doesn't matter. It doesn't exist. Why do you think the Bible spends time trying to convey unto us the efforts to reach unity? Because even God knows when he sets in motion this creation, it's never going to be united. Because someone is going to eventually value prophets over people. And those are the paths we take to get power. Do I have to take you back and remind you that they brought my and your ancestors here from the shores of West Africa across the Middle Passage, down to the Atlantic, across here to Virginia, all because of prophets. They ended slavery because they recognized the development of the cotton gin moving from a more laborious individual labor of profit to a now an industrial age, it wasn't profitable to have slaves anymore. So you can use machinery now and you don't need human labor. Everything is about profit. Everything. If you don't think it is, don't give me any more time and offering this church. See how long them doors stay open out there. Don't pay your mortgage. Don't pay your car note. Don't pay your insurance. See how quick things lapse. Everything is about 
That's why he who holds the gold rules the whole. And when you threaten profit, you got to go. That's, what's in the, that's what this text is all about. But yet, God allows Paul and Silas to be dragged in the prison. Have you noticed Luke nor Timothy is not arrested? I'm going to underscore once again. Want to know why? Because they are Gentiles. They're not Jews. Are we back to race again? We sure are. They are not arrested because Luke, who is a full Gentile, and Timothy, who is half Gentile and half Jew, and you know what they say about interracial children. If you, if you got just one speck of African, you black. There it is right in the text. So Luke, neither Timothy is arrested because they can stand off as Gentiles because this is not a Gentile issue. This is a Jewish issue. Two Jewish guys come into our town and talk about something that is not lawful for us to hear and they are throwing our city into confusion. No, their truth is being proclaimed and it's changing lives. That's what evangelism does. It goes into space that the power structure don't want you to affect because if you start coming in and sharing messages and you open eyes, God knows if you help them see the truth, you are a threat to the establishment. And I just came by to tell somebody this morning, because God has you where you are, you are an evangelistic tool who making your way to the power that which God wants you to have to be the evangelist that you are anointed to be, that means that you're not only going to have some testing, you may experience some loss, you may have some persecution, but can't nobody tell you about your story once you survive each and every one of them. And Paul is getting the difficult, look at what the text says, it says that the magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to beat them. They didn't just get a good beating. They got a serious beat down. See, Roman soldiers would carry around what's called bundles. And bundles was just what it was, a bundle of hard bamboo rods. Anywhere between four to five of them knotted together and they stripped them of their garments and beat them to the pulp. And when I read this story, and you may not see this, but I, I think about my ancestors who were beaten because they didn't plow the field right. Because they didn't pick the potatoes right. Because they looked up at the master. I think of the whips on their backs because they were sick and couldn't work. There, there it is. Look at the right. Look at verse 22. They beat, proceeded, and ordered them to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, threw them in the prison. 
told the jailer, whatever you do, don't let them out. Don't let anybody see them. Keep them where they are. You're not going to find this out now. You'll find out later. They wanted to do that because they had beaten them so bad that they did not want people complaining in the public square exactly what the power structure does behind closed doors. I ain't going to talk about the sister who died in prison in Texas, and we still ain't figure out how she died we still can't figure out how did she die. You arrest her, take her to jail, then she dies in the jail, and not even an autopsy is giving us the information that we desire. Talking about the power structure. Paul doesn't break down. This strange path of persecution, which entailed a harsh beating with bundles of rods, inflicted punishment on Paul and Silas for preaching what is perceived to be contrary to Rome and possibly carrying the power to persuade others. They placed them in maximum security prison. No one, was repaired, no one was prepared for their response to injuring their bodies and challenging their soul. They responded in prison with prayer and praise. That's strange behavior. I want retaliation. I want to pay them back. But they responded with prayer and pray. Prayer because it's an internal relationship for stability and praise because it's an external release to affirm your stability. After being severely beaten, they found themselves in a filthy dungeon with their feet fastened with chains to the ground to induce pain. You got to understand this. Those chains stretched their legs as far as they could apart that they might feel the agony of what Rome is believed to be feeling. And yet, in spite of that, Paul, verse 25, and Silas prayed. Because Paul and Silas did not base their theology on their circumstance. They based their circumstance on their theology. So there are three lessons I came to tell you. Number one, you can't get a pearl without sand agitation. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to get what power you want from God without some agitation. Number two, the fire must refine the gold to bring it value and to be usable. You might have a clunk of gold, but it's not usable unless it goes through the fire and be designed into what it was intended to be. And number three, the pottery is always at the will of the potter because of vision. When God puts you on the wheel, Jeremiah 19 God does that because as the potter, he is in control of what the pottery will become. And we got to stop praying, Lord, make me and mold me if you don't really understand what you're praying about. That means that God is going to make you and mold you. And watch this. The pottery doesn't accept the glaze unless it's heated. You can't illuminate without the glaze and then if you're not careful if you decide that you don't want to be the kind of pottery that God is making you to be in doing you with power the potter always has the power to put the pottery on the shelf until and all I got to tell you is that until could mean soon or it can mean until eternity strange path 
Lord, bless somebody today that this word would give them strength to leave this day of worship inspired.